Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. All right, for those of you who are unaware, um, I'm predominantly a Mexican-American. I say predominantly because my mom is half Mexican and she's half Hungarian, so we say we're hungry Mexicans. Um, And so, no, (laughs) that one didn't go. It's okay. Um, Anyways, (laughs) Um, but having grown up in a Mexican family, we eat, uh, we make a lot of fresh salsa. Funny thing, this came up this week earlier with you. Uh, We make at least once a week fresh salsa growing up. And particularly, uh, the family recipe is called salsa fresca. It's fresh salsa. Some might call it pico de gallo, but that's a little different, and honestly, it's not as good. Um, but it's simply a mixture of tomatoes, onions, cilantro, and salt, pepper, a little bit of garlic, and onion powder, sometimes a little bit else, and some jalapeno juice. It's pretty easy, but oftentimes, at least once a week, a giant bowl of chips and salsa could be Sunday night dinner for all of us. Uh, we just chow down on that, and it's very filling. Looking back, I'm realizing how many carbs that was, and that was probably not good but my dad still to this day does it, and he's pretty healthy, so. Um, But a little over eight years ago, I was a student ministries pastor in Northern California, and one of my students introduced me to mango salsa. Now, I don't believe up until that point I had ever actually had mango. I may have had it mixed in in a juice, but I had never actually even seen what it looked like. I don't know why, it's kind of weird looking back. But anyways, uh, since then, I, I loved it. I've been modifying my family's salsa recipe, incorporating the mangoes. And uh, we came to just figure out that the best option is to just make our salsa fresca and then add in the amount of mangoes that we like to our liking. Up until that point, though, yeah, I definitely hadn't seen it. So even more so, I'd never cut a mango. And have we ever cut a mango? Has anyone ever tried that? It's kind of tricky. It's not your standard apple or orange or even just cutting off a stem of a strawberry or anything like that. It it takes some skill, it takes some looking at YouTube. Thank God for that. Uh, But even still, a few years ago I was having some guests, we were having guests over to our house for dinner, and uh, Aaron and Gracie were at uh, work and school, and I was home prepping the salsa for that evening's dinner. And um, yeah, so I make two batches of fresh salsa, and then um, yeah, I do all the fresca part, and it's in one giant bowl. And then I start cutting mangoes. Now, important, important piece of information to this story. We had just been gifted a brand new knife set from my parents. It was apparently incredibly sharp knives. They still are. And uh, I recall this because I can still hear my dad telling me at least five times at Christmas, these knives are very sharp. Um, so, you can imagine where the story's going. I am chopping the mangoes, slicing them over the salsa bowl that is just this giant batch already. It's all the tomatoes I have. And I chop it right over because I didn't want to lose the juice, you know? It was a really juicy one that adds the flavor. It's important. So I, I took the risk. While I was slicing, I hit a soft spot, a tender spot in the mango, sliced through, 
got more than just the skin of the mango, got quite a bit of skin on my finger, the blade slipped, there's blood just seeping, soaking into the salsa, and it's lovely. All that work is tainted, yeah. Um, my finger began to bleed probably more than I thought was possible, and yet still be okay, you know? I kind of thought I might need to go to the hospital, but I'm also a sucker for that stuff. So what was I to do? Garlic and onion powder. Probably could cover up the taste, but like, would that be okay? Um, I'm not sure that's ethically okay. If it was uncooked meat, perhaps, I could like grill it and, and we could just say the contamination's done. But this was fresh salsa. So you, you just, you most likely can't do that. Um, but some of you are doubting whether or not you should ever come over for dinner at our house now. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> yes, so even if there would have been the tiniest drops of blood, which again, it was far from tiniest of drops. It was, it was, there was not drops, it was like a flow. Anyways, um, the entire batch would have still been immediately wasted, contaminated. Needless to say, we didn't have mango salsa that night. We had store-bought salsa. Um, this morning, we're discussing sin and its consequences. Now, rather than viewing sin as something that contaminates everything it touches, no matter how seemingly small and insignificant it may be, we can tend to brush over sin. We can say it's just a few drops, it's not that much. It doesn't affect everything. We can tend to pick out the pieces. Perhaps we even try to stir up the sin in the salsa of our lives, hoping the delicious flavors of the other ingredients kind of overpower the taste of blood, right? Or hoping our good deeds outweigh, overshadow the good components of ourselves, um, or overshadow the bad deeds and flaws of our lives. So, we'll be asking the questions. What is sin? Why does it matter? What can be done about it? Another way we may be asking these questions, yeah, what's the nature of sin? What are the effects of sin? And what is the remedy for sin? Uh, to preface, I'm mainly speaking down on the ground level, not this like overarching the effects of sin on all of the created order. We kind of touched on that last week a little bit when we talked about the call of humans and the image, our, our call to image God in all of creation and to all of creation. We're talking more just down on the ground, in our lives, everyday stuff of normal life. So, let's begin. Um, what is sin? Well, the scriptures, in particular the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, have, they use a lot of words for what the word sin. We kind of don't have enough words to translate it to English, but we mainly use three words. And I'm just going to briefly summarize these three words. And the psalmist in this passage actually uses them all in the first couple verses. So the first word... Sin. The word is kata. You don't need to know that. I don't know why I'm saying it. I keep going. Uh, our first word, sin, is the primary word we tend to use when we refer to our shortcomings. To God and to others. It simply means to miss the mark. So imagine a target, whether you're doing target practice like archery or something like that, and you're aiming for something, you're playing darts, whatever, and you just totally miss. You miss the board. This reflects a moral fail failure or a deliberate choice where you had the choice to hit that target and you just went the other way. 
It's kind of like when Aaron maybe calls Rowan to come back and she goes the other way. It's just, it's just going the opposite of the way we know is the mark. The other two words are likely terms that we're probably less likely to utilize. So the second one is transgression. Now this word, it indicates breaking or violating trust with others. Um, some of your translations may say revolt, rebellion, or even trespass. But no, it's a breaking or violating trust with others. Now this can be between ourselves and God or another person or even just a community of people. Imagine if someone like lost their, they, they harmed our community. And so we kind of have to gather around and, and, and develop a plan of how they can regain our trust potentially. Doesn't mean they're excommunicated or no love or grace or acceptance, but there might just be like, hey, I don't know if we can trust you at this moment. That's kind of how we view transgressions. And we see this in society, we see this in churches, we see this in homes, we see this in schools, and places of work. Places of work, you may call this probation and things of that sort, even in society, probation can be a sort of giving you this time to regain your trust in society. And what does this do? It damages our relationship. It damages our relationship with God. This happens all the time in the Hebrew Scriptures. God's people, the Israelites, are consistently breaking their covenant with God. And so it damages their relationship. That's why they're often wandering and we see them moving in and out of towns and in and out of regions. It affects their relationship. Uh, the other section we see this a lot is a section called the Minor Prophets. That's after uh, Ezekiel all the way to the beginning of the New Testament. A lot of those writers, Micah and Amos in particular, they use this word a lot, transgression. In particular, God speaks to them, through them, to confront nations for idolatry or for ignoring or violating the poor for the sake of strong economies, national security, special interests, things of that sort. That is a transgression. For God, he's saying, because of the way you are doing this, our relationship is tainted. It's marred right now. There is a breach. It's fragile. Something needs to be done. And the third word is iniquity. Now this could be translated as wicked, guilt, or even sin. Like I said, this word, uh, there's, there's quite a few Hebrew words and Greek words that we really only have a handful in English. So sometimes it can't even be cross-translated to sin. But it essentially means bent crooked, warped, bent out of shape. Uh, for me, I'm a, I'm a vinyl record, uh, I wouldn't say collector because I don't buy super expensive ones, but I like, I like vinyls, I got a lot of vinyls. And for me, what I see when I hear warped or bent out of shape is, um, well, when you're buying records, especially in summer, uh, you have to, even just this last weekend, uh, we were in Worcester and I wanted to buy this record, but I knew we were gonna go shop around and our car is all black interior and it was hot that record would have been warped within like 30 minutes. It would have been ruined. Could we have still listened to it? Yeah, it probably would have sounded all like like just really weird and just, could we have made out the song? Potentially, but it wouldn't be exactly the way the artist intended it to be. It's not unplayable. I could play it, but would it sound good? No. What does this have to do with sin, in particular iniquity? 
This is the picture that the writers of scriptures are trying to convey for us. That just as we can make out the song on the warped record, however distorted and out of tune it may be, so it is with ourselves and the world at large. So the cosmos, the world, humanity as a whole, like we talked about last week, reflects to some extent the glory of God. Now God's beauty and majesty can still be seen, though it has been warped as a result of humanity's conscious, crooked choices. So, iniquities reflect the consequences of these conscious, crooked choices we've made. They are, warped re- <laughs> they are the warped record I am left to listen to because I chose to risk leaving the record in the hot car while I ran one more errand. So, the starting point is good. The end point is good. We just kind of did this. And for some, it's say, well, we got there. Well, not necessarily. That's, that's the imagery they're trying to... To, to paint for us. It doesn't completely translate it, but that's essentially what it is. It is distorting something good. You still see ingredients of the goodness, but it's not in the correct shape or form. So, those are the three words. Practically speaking, why does this matter? Um, well, let's talk about what this can and does look like in our lives. Now, sin, I grew up thinking, and probably incorrectly, Uh, that sin was simply doing something wrong or not doing something right. So do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. That That was sin. If you were to do those, you sinned. It was just this action, and that was it. Sin is so much more than that. It may be fair to say that sin is an outward expression of an inward reality. Think of sin as having a dietary allergy, right? For some of us with allergies, when we eat something that our body rejects or doesn't like, it may manifest in our skin through hives, acne, some sort of itching, red, red spots, whatever that may be. The problem is not those outward manifestations, the hives, the skin, the acne, and, that, and so forth. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it may look funny. Yeah, whatever, and, and so forth. It may feel uncomfortable or even hurt. And we can put topical stuff on it, we can get injections, whatever it may be, to treat those on the surface, but unless we deal with what's actually going on on the inside that is manifesting out through our skin, we're just going to keep having the same problem. We're dealing with the surface level, and that sin is not just a surface thing. If we try to confront one sin on its surface level, we could be successful in stopping some sort of practice or, or, or tangible sin or, or uh, even addiction, if you will, quote-unquote. But at the same time, it may just manifest in a different area. So instead of maybe being addicted to alcohol, we could become addicted to buying things. Or instead of seeking pleasure of Uh, significant others uh, seeking validation from them, we can seek validation in our work and live for that. And our happiness and joy is built on that. It can just be reallocated. Dorothy Sayers wrote of this, sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. It's a desire to keep control of your life. Uh, Timothy Keller expanded on this point in Counterfeit Gods, if this is something that interests you, which 
This is a phenomenal little book on idolatry. He writes, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. We rarely confront those sins, right? Most of the people who feel outcasted from the church and feel like they can't enter these doors are not the ones who are doing good things for the wrong reasons, for self-praise or self-gratification or anything of that self. No, those are all just kind of socially accepted sins, and we all do them. Those aren't the ones. Keller's saying most of the sin that we actually deal with on a regular basis is this, making good things into ultimate things. He goes on, sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So literally anything can become our God. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we read about these idols, and for them they're, they're literally these statues. We don't do a lot of that anymore. Some cultures do even in the States, but a lot of Eastern cultures still utilize actual physical statues or, man or representations of some sort of extra uh, out there God or deity of some sort. But for us, gods in a, in a post-religious culture in this de-spiritualized culture in the West, for us, gods tend to be more our spouses. Uh, our desires, our career pursuits, our families, our desire for power, our political affiliations, things of that sort. Things that we look to that can be good things when they are in their correct place. But when they become elevated above God, that's when they become sin. So anything can become our God. Looks or our wealth, food or fitness, strengths or weaknesses. We can have false humility, right? We're just like, oh, woe is me. I, yeah, I just need, and it's like just for the sake of getting appreciation and respect that, wow, they're so humble. Pride or humility, anarchy or patriotism, fame or fortune, leadership or service, even service, even good things can become a God to us. That if we were to not be able to do it or we find our joy in that, our utmost identity, that if people don't see us as that, we're lost. We don't know who we are. That's when something becomes elevated to God. So anything can become enslaving to us. Anything can become the object of our ultimate attention and affection. Anything can become the object of our worship that we build our lives around. Anything can become what we place our hope in. Anything can become our God. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus rarely confronts people who are like, he rarely has these interactions with people who we would socially be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They're this socially unacceptable, they're, they're in this socially unacceptable, sinful pattern. No, he, he mainly confronts people who the community may have thought as these honorable, godly people. People who were doing the right thing, doing the good thing, living for God. But they were doing it for the wrong reasons. They were doing it for their own justification. They were doing it for their own glory, praise, whatever it may be, even, yes, earning their place before God, that they might be able to stand before God and say, look what I've done, now what are you gonna do for me? 
placing them above God. So one thing that tends to keep people from the kingdom is not so much our bad deeds, but our good deeds that are done for selfish reasons. In short, Eugene Peterson wrote this. He wrote, Our experience of sin consists not in doing bad, but in being bad. It's a fundamental condition of our existence, not a temporary lapse into error. Confessing our sin isn't resolving not to sin anymore. It's discovering what God has resolved to do with us as sinners. And what he has resolved to do is tune us into the foot-tapping songs of forgiveness and said, or once broken bones, to dancing. So this is what God desires to do, to reunite heaven and earth, to renew all of creation, to restore us to good, right, flourishing relationship with God, but there are ramifications for the world that we built. And that's why sin matters. John Orborg wrote, sin is somehow at the root of all human misery. Sin is what keeps us from God and from life. It is in the face of every battered woman, the cry of every neglected child, the despair of every addict, the death of every victim of every war. Wendell Berry wrote of its far-reaching effects. He just said, for any sin, we all suffer. That is why our suffering is endless. So why does sin matter? That's why. We're going to walk through Psalm 51 briefly. That's why, though, it affects everything. It is at the root of all our pain and sorrow. It affects each and every one of us deeply, both individually and corporately. In past human history and at this very moment, sin matters because of its ramifications. So, let's start in Psalm 51, verse 1. And just for some context, if you're unfamiliar, uh, this psalm can be generalized. Uh, we believe this is when David is essentially repenting to God in light of uh, the sin he had committed in the Old Testament with a gal named Bathsheba. Uh, she was someone else's wife. He slept with her. Uh, she got pregnant in order to, well, she had his, her husband killed. Crazy intense stuff. And we're like, this guy wrote part of the Bible? Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about. But yes, God utilized even Adam's uh, repentance here. But that's the table here, but we can generalize this for ourselves as we walk through sin. So starting in verse 1, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The focus isn't the removal of his sins, but appeasing God. David's become aware of these circumstances. Keep going in verse 2. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice, we've got transgression, we've got iniquity, we've got sin. His appeal isn't based on anything he's done. He's not playing the pity card. He's not saying, look what I've done, or you owe me. He's appealing to God on the basis of his steadfast, unfailing, loyal love. And he uses the metaphor of washing, right? Wash me, cleanse me from my sin. I picture, I get this feeling, that this imagery of just like a long, hard day's work out in the sun, 
just drenched and, and you know how when you sweat so much and then you finally cool off but like your shirt still really stinks and you just feel the like stickiness and <laughs> Morgan's like, yeah. Um, and you're just like, oh my gosh, this feels awful. And then imagine you get a call like from someone like, hey, I'm stopping by. It's like, oh no, like I gotta hit the shower. This is disgusting. It's uncomfortable. I don't wanna be seen like this. I don't wanna be in person with someone else like this. He's vulnerable. He's feeling that. He, he might, can you identify with just his shame, his embarrassment, his discomfort before God? He keeps going in verse three. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's not arguing. He's not justifying why. Yes, I did this, but God, here's why I did this. Or they tempted me to do this. Or I was weak. I was tired. Whatever. No, he's just saying, I know. My sin is right before you. Nothing is hidden from you. He goes on, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Now, did he really only sin against God? Uh, He's exaggerating here. Obviously, he sinned against Bathsheba and the gentleman who he had killed and just a lot of his own spouses, his own family, all that type of stuff. But while the sin had its effect and ramifications on the world, the community, the people right there involved, the primary and worst offense is to God. It's towards God. That's what he's acknowledging here. He's, just, he's exaggerating a bit, but it is primarily God that he has offended. And he goes on in verse 5, Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. He's contrasting the holiness of God with his impurity. He inherited this fallen nature from Adam and Eve. So for them, for him in this moment, and for us as we can try and relate, step in David's shoes, maybe we haven't done this exact thing, I hope none of us have, but with whatever sin, transgression, iniquity that we have or are dealing with or will deal with, we can identify with David here. This is kind of the layout of how we approach God. But what can we actually do about our sin? What is its remedy? This is where David keeps going. While our default may be to numb or cope, whether through culturally acceptable or unacceptable things, this passage gives us another way. Look at verse seven, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop, just a note, we don't really use that anymore. I don't, unless you do, but I don't. Um, I'm not aware of it. But it was utilized in Leviticus for uh, skin disease cleansing rituals. It's, it's a, a branch of hyssop was also used, um, if, you're, if you recall, during Passover to spread the blood over the doorposts the, the eve before Passover. It was utilized in this cleansing. And he... And he says, wash me whiter than snow, whiter than we can imagine. Because snow, I mean, just imagine those winter mornings, some of these hot days, I'm like, I'm just like, you know, I, I, I could do for a good, like, just blanket of snow outside. And Aaron is like, heck no, I love the snow, and I like to read just looking out, just that peaceful, calm presence, calming presence, especially just how pure the snow looks, how peaceful and calming it looks on that morning after a good snow. 
That's the illustration. That's the imagery that David is utilizing. Make me that way. He goes on, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Um, it's not really, God didn't break his bones. Just so we know, these, this is poetic language. But it's an indicator of the consequences of his sin that he's feeling just even physically, the torment of the consequences of his sin. It says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new right spirit within me. Now, ancient Near Easterners would have thought heart to be more your mind. Give me renewed thinking. That's why Paul in Romans 12 says, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a way of seeing who you are, who God is, your, your entire reality in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So he's not simply asking, don't, don't just remove the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Often we want the penalty of sin removed, but we want to keep going in whatever we may enjoy or just kind of tolerate, right? We don't want to deal with it. Life's too hard. There's too much going on. I don't want to confront that. Can you just forgive me and let's move on? No, he's asking for freedom from the power of sin. Create in me a clean heart. Put a new and right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me in a willing spirit. This creation, this, this word created me, he's literally using the word from Genesis 1, from the start, from the create, recreate in me. And this is what is later fulfilled, right, in Jesus. That Jesus inaugurates new creation. David is he's pleading for that. He asks, don't remove my spirit, your presence from me. One commentator wrote, to have that presence removed or to be excluded from communion with God is the ultimate punishment imaginable. None of us can fathom that. We've never experienced that, a lack of God's presence. God's presence is here. It's always been with us. None of us can fathom God's presence removed from us. But for David, that was far more vital than water for his body. Now, what does God do in response to this request? And here's where, as we wrap up, what does he do in response to this request? Well, Eugene Peterson wrote, when we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. He doesn't leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. Before we even requested anything, I'm going to just, so you know, I'm going to look at Isaiah 53 if you want to turn there, as I'm turning there, but before we even requested anything, God made a way. And anywhere from six to nine centuries before Jesus walked the earth, he wrote 
of what Jesus would do. If you look at verse 4, I don't think this is on the slide, sorry. Isaiah prophesies of Jesus. He says, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. He's taken on the consequences of our sin, physically, spiritually, and so forth. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was grounded, he was wounded for what? For our transgressions. And he was crushed for what? Our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, again, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that it before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Again, presence, departed. He's literally fulfilling what David is saying. Don't do this to me. Jesus is doing it. He's taking this. He's departed from the land of the living. God's presence is removed from him. Stricken from the tra- for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Last two verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. Again, David's bones illustration. My crushed bones. Jesus is taking it. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper, Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So much of that, and I don't have time, David's requests are answered by Jesus. Jesus fulfills this plea from David. And Jesus makes a way. So what does this mean for us here now? Residents in this community, partners of LifeBridge today, what does this mean for us? I've got three implications for us. One, receive God's mercy and grace. If you haven't yet, and even still, this is not something we receive once. This is an active thing. Receive it, his pardon from the penalty of sin, as well as freedom from the power of sin. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote, The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. This is what Paul means in Colossians 2. It says, And when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. 
He set this aside. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them in it. So our penalty has been paid, but notice he triumphed. He, he, made, he made a joke of the rulers and authorities of this world, meaning Satan and his, and his armies. They don't have power for those over us who are in Christ. They cannot take our place before God. The penalty has been paid. Sin, death, and the enemy have no power over us who follow Jesus. Instead, we have freedom to live resurrected lives here and now in the power of the Spirit. And that's why, again, Paul in Romans 6, he writes, We know that our self, our old self, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, so we might no longer be enslaved to sin. This is where that song we love comes in. No longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. We don't have to live the way we used to. We don't have to make gods out of what we used to. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. <clears throat> But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's literally no penalty left for you for sin. And the power of sin has no grip on you. We have been freed from those chains. And now to our second implication. It says, do not grow complacent with your sin. I say the Jesus part before because I don't want us to think that we have to do this in order to be right with God. No, if anything, Jesus died to save and change and sustain us. His Spirit now saves, changes, and sustains us until our last breath. This is something that is, it's not a, okay, I prayed a prayer and we're good and I don't have to deal with anything anymore. I got saved. It's like, well, don't think of it just as this momentary thing. God is constantly working in us. He is to be. But if we just think of this like, okay, I did it, and now we're good, be like, yeah, I said I do to my wife on the altar, but now I'm going to go live my own life. It's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm in covenant with her now. I'm in community with her. I am one with her. And we, too, we are in covenant with God and his people now. We are one with him. We are to live our lives in unison with him. And as things become exposed as the incongruences of our soul, of our heart, of our mind, of our body become apparent by the Spirit, that's where we don't become complacent with our sin. No matter how small or seemingly insignificant, we are to seek growth in the Spirit. Not to earn our place, but because our place is there. That is our place. Rightful heirs with God. Image bearers. John Bunyan wrote, One leak will sink a ship, and one sin will destroy a sinner. One leak will sink a ship, and one sin will destroy a sinner. 
Now, does this mean we can't sin anymore? No, we are going to sin, right? right? His point is, and the scriptures, I think the point is, that our ongoing sin, we shouldn't be just brushing under the rug and be like, that's okay. Because rarely does it just stay there. It contaminates everything. Like the blood in my salsa illustration, it will contaminate everything if we don't get a hold of it. That's why the Puritan minister, John Owen, wrote pretty roughly, but still, he's a little more rigid, but he writes, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. You may have heard that quote before. That's kind of his known thing from 17th century. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. For any of us who have gone through some sort of recovery program, we know that time does not heal our wounds, our sins, our patterns. C.S. Lewis wrote, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels our sin, fill that blink in, maybe cancels our pain, our, our hurts, our traumas, it gets rid of it. But mere time does nothing, either to the fact or to the guilt of it. Friends, we can't run from our sin. But here's the good thing. We don't need to. We don't need to. Just like David in this passage in the psalm was vulnerable, naked before God, that he, he was able to recognize, man, I've got nothing to hide from you. You see more than I see. You are more aware of my innermost thoughts and feelings than I am. Know that there's nothing that you have done or thought or said that God is not aware of and that Jesus did not pay for and that the Spirit has not given you new life in light of. And how do we do this? Well, how do we not grow complacent? Well, we do it together. The last, that's the last implication. Fight sin together. The life of the Jesus follower is not one to be lived alone. Jesus didn't die for me, he died for us. He didn't just, like, hey, I'm doing this for Tyler. No, he's doing this for his entire bride throughout all human history. So just as the effects of sin affect us all, corporately and individually, yes. Similarly, Jesus died for us all individually, but corporately. And his spirit is working in us all individually, but collectively, together as one. So even if we partake right here regularly on Sunday morning, it's pretty hard. Or, I shouldn't say it's pretty hard. We can easily still live an isolated life. We can still live a life where people may know our names, our interests, our families, our vocations, but they may not actually know us. They may not know what's going on in here. And in reality, if we're on our own, we won't really know what's going on in here. Because I need you. I need you. We need each other to help expose those things. We work together. We are body parts of a body. We are not our own body on our own. We are members of one body. We need each other. The life of a Jesus follower is not one 
in isolation. That's why Jesus' little brother in James 5 calls us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. And that's why the author of Hebrews encouraged us not to forsake the gathering of the local church community. But he said, or it could be a she, uh, whoever wrote it said, exhort one another. How often? As long as it's called today. What does that mean? Every day. Every day is called today, right? Because today is today. We are to live life together in community beyond just casual acquaintances, but no, getting deep life on life. That is what we are trying to form on Thursday nights, right, with groups, where instead of right now, we're all kind of looking up at me, but then there's a, there's a time on Thursday nights where we're all looking at each other. And they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and we are in love, in grace, trusting one another, trusting the Spirit's power, looking at the Scriptures, inviting, welcoming one another in a safe place together to help each other grow together in the likeness of Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.